Thanks, Justin. Uh, you all probably noticed uh, Justin's song was from Psalm 86. And um, one of the things that I, I've really done since um, the pandemic started, I, I listened uh, to Go Figure, a Tim Keller sermon, and um, he, uh, he talked about uh, in 01, he was reflecting back on 01 in New York City, 9-11. And, um, and he had talked to a, a pastor in Oklahoma City uh, who had been there for the, uh, the bombings that happened in Oklahoma City a few years before. And um, it, this was probably like November, December of 01. It had been a couple months. You know, they, they, he had led through some severe crisis uh, in the church and um, with 9-11. And now he was just like, you know, starting to gain his footing a little bit. And uh, this pastor from Oklahoma City called him and, uh, and just said, hey, I just, wanted, I just had a, thought I had a word for you. And uh, he said, what, I, what got me uh, through, the, not just the, the, the immediate time of crisis, but kind of the enduring months that were after the crisis, uh, were the Psalms. I got to a place where I didn't know what to pray. And I got to a place where there were all kinds of things going on in the emotional landscape of my life that I couldn't quite get my finger on, that I couldn't, didn't know how to pray through. And he said, what the Psalms became, uh, they were my prayers. Uh, I didn't know what to pray, and the Psalms became my prayers. And I think that's a good word for us, uh, that uh, we sing these Psalms, uh, we read these Psalms, but I I'd love us to be a church that prays these Psalms, uh, that when we don't know what to pray, we've got these words. Uh, and this is, this is not a plug. Uh, I, I don't get paid by the ESV, um, but the ESV, the extra special version, um, they have uh, these prayer journals, and on the right-hand side of the page is the text, or the left-hand side of the page is the text, and the right-hand side of the version uh, of, the, of, the, of the book is journal entry. And so a lot of times what I do for my devotional times is I read a psalm and I write out on the right-hand side of the page. So if you're a left-hander, it's not really made for you. Maybe there's some left-hand versions for you, but um, it's a really good tool. It's been good for me, and it's six bucks. So... Um, could work for you. Anyways, let me pray and we'll get started. Father, we do thank you for the Psalms. Lord, we thank you that the Bible is a whole variety of genres from poetry to narrative uh, to letters like we will read tonight in First Timothy. Uh, so Lord, uh, as we approach your word, Lord, we are not approaching a dead document. We are not approaching a historical document only. We are not um, just here for a therapy session. We are here to hear from your word that is living and active. And so, Lord, would you make applications that I could never in a million years make because, Lord, you know us all individually. I do this, we pray. Amen. Uh, there's a, a, a preacher about 100 years ago. His name's Thomas Weddle, and uh, he was a pastor in D.C., and um, he told us a version of the story uh, I'm going to read to you right now. He writes, on a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks often occur, there was a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut with one small boat. It had a few devoted members, and those members kept constant watch over the sea, and they did so tirelessly, day and night, searching for those who were in danger. And some who were saved by, this, by the work of this little crew they wanted to give back some time. They wanted to give back some money to ensure that this work continued. 
So they bought new boats. They trained new crews for this little life-saving station. And over time, some of the members, they grew unhappy because the building was crude. It was poorly equipped. So they committed to provide a, a bigger building, a more comfortable refuge for those who were saved from the sea. They, they replaced the emergency costs with beds. They bought better furniture. And now... The life-saving station, what used to just be a hut, now became a place to gather for the members. It was decorated beautiful with life-saving decor. And it started to be used as kind of a club. Fewer members were interested in going out to the sea on life-saving missions, so they began to hire lifeboat crews to do the work. And one evening, the biggest shipwreck in the history of the life-saving station occurred. It occurred during the Christmas party. And so these hired crews, they brought in boatloads of these cold, wet, and half-drowned people who had become sick. They were dirty. And now their new club was in chaos. And so now the organization was at a crossroads. Would it continue to do the work of a life-saving station, or would it abandon its work to become a club? Some argued that the life-saving activities were unpleasant and they were a hindrance to the club life that they enjoyed. And on the other side, you had those who insisted that life-saving be their primary mission. And so those who wanted a club won out. And they encouraged the life-savers to start their own life-saving station. And so the life-savers left. And they did so. And as the years went by, the new stations experienced the same changes that occurred at that first life-saving station. The station would eventually evolve into a club, and the lifesavers would be sent out to start another station. And so history repeated itself over and over, so that if you go to that seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks still happen there, but most of the people drown. It's a cautionary tale. Not a true story. It's a cautionary tale to the church of every age. There's always a temptation in every church to become insular, to concern itself mostly with bonding ties between members, than in bridging ties to those outside the church and the surrounding community. And when you look at churches like ours, church plants, those who wander in the desert, we're in a great position to be these kinds of life-saving stations. Uh, Keller wrote this little article called Why Plant Churches. It's not hard to find if you Google for it. It's just five pages long. It's not going to take you forever. And I, I think you guys should all read it. But in it, he says that church plants, as opposed to more established churches, are better equipped to reach new generations new people groups, and new residents to their neighborhood. And I think he's right. And that's why I desire two things for our church. The first thing is I want our church to always feel like a church plant. I have a friend, he's an assistant pastor in, um, in Greenville, South Carolina. His name is Jonathan Davis. He, he was a part of our, our plant when we got started. And uh, the church that he's at is called Downtown Presbyterian Church. And uh, his pastor, their pastor's name is Brian Habig. Brian Habig planted that church. And 
Jonathan always talks about how Habig's always uh, talking to the staff and to the members that he wants his church to always feel like a church plant because it's going to value innovation over tradition. That's going to funnel uh, its programs and its ministries are going to be focused on those outside of the church and not just those inside the church. They're going to be characterized by taking risks. And this is a large church, at least for our denomination. They're building a big, nice building. And Jonathan told me that his fear, and that the pastor's fear, is that they would become like an established church and not like a church plant. I hope the same is true for us. The second reason is I want us to always be involved in church planting, establishing other life-saving stations. Uh, Our hope is that in the next 15 years that we would plant 10 churches in central Kentucky. The first one's happening this fall. Uh, Travis Stevens, who used to be here, and Josh Crawford, uh, who's here at Tates Creek, uh, their families, along with several other families who already live in Richmond, are going to start a plant start a church plant in Richmond. I was just with them this week. We looked at the Arts Center in downtown Richmond. We looked at uh, the library in downtown Richmond as places for their worship. And we hope, we hope this happens again and again and again, that we want to plant these churches. We, we sent the Stevenses. We also sent another family, the Shannons, that many of you know. We sent 10 people and some money to help get this church started. And we hope this happens in North Lexington. We hope this happens in Hamburg and Beaumont and Georgetown and all the surrounding counties. And we do want to send them money, but we also want to send them some of you to help get these churches started. Now listen, I, I, I'm excited about going to Arlington. I, I really am. I'm excited about putting new officers uh, before you very, very soon for you to pray about and then elect. But you can have a new location, you can have a new batch of officers, and we can lose our focus on being a life-saving mission It's always been true for the church. It was true for the church in Ephesus too. Ephesus is the church that Paul's really writing to. Timothy's the pastor there. Paul's not present, so Paul's trying to coach Timothy up to be the pastor that he needs to be there in Ephesus. And so far, as we've looked through 1 Timothy, we've been dealing with internal issues. The internal issues of the church, that there's these false teachers that Timothy has to address. The internal issues of Timothy's own soul care. That he's got to see himself as a chief of sinners just like Paul has. So that he can sing, so he can be full of joy. These are internal issues. And now we get to chapter 2 and the focus shifts. And the focus shifts on those on the outside. These these bridging ties. So let's read these first seven verses together. 1 Timothy 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. We'll pause right there. Those four words are, are, are really just all four ways of saying prayer. And they really refer to, as we'll see next week too, it really refers to the worship service. So he's talking about the worship service here. And in the worship service, they're to pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. It's good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. 
I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. The word of the Lord. I don't know if this is the first thing that jumped out to you, but what jumped out to me first when I started reading this text early in the week was the number of times all is used to refer to the whole quantity. You see in verse 1, they're to pray for all people. Verse 2, they're to pray for all those in positions, in high positions. Verse 4, that God desires all people to be saved. Verse 6, Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all So do you see this totally comprehensive vision of who the church is supposed to be concerned about? They're supposed to be concerned about all people because God wants all to be saved. And that's why he gave his son as a ransom for all. It makes sense, doesn't it, for God to be concerned about all people? I mean, after all, he made us as opposed to anything else. He made us as image bearers of him. That he gave up his beloved son to make salvation possible so that we might be reunited with God? It makes sense. And we know there's there's invitations throughout the gospel of God wanting the whole world to come to him. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. A couple weeks ago, Luke Rakestraw preached and he said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. John 12, 32, Jesus says that when I am lifted up from earth, I will draw all people to myself. So here's the implication of Paul using this repetition for Timothy and therefore to us. If God cares about the whole world, so should we. But it raises a theological conundrum, doesn't it? If God loves the whole world, why aren't all people Christians? I mean, it's a question that Christians have been asking for the whole history of the church. And if you start digging into this, you can get some answers. But it's probably not going to satisfy your curiosity There's always going to be some sense of mystery to this question. And that's a good thing. Because we're just people. We're not God. He's not told us everything there is to know to answer the question, if God wants to save all people, then why aren't all people saved? Even though there's some mystery, it's not that there's nothing that we can say about it. Can't just ask the question and say, oh, it's all mystery. Can't know anything. God actually has told us some things, just not all things. I mean, even if you just look at 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy, Paul, he helps deal with this question. I mean, 1 Timothy 1.13, we looked at it last week. He talks about that there was a time when he had not received mercy. In other words, there was a time when he wasn't a Christian. 1 Timothy 3.6. Paul speaks of a time, speaks of some who fall into the condemnation of the devil. 1 Timothy 5.24. He mentions that there's a sin that leads to judgment. 1 Timothy 6.9. It warns us that greed can plunge people into ruin and destruction. 
So what Paul is trying to do is show us that, yeah, there are people who aren't Christians. But right here in this text, verse 4 says that he desires all to be saved. Jesus says the same thing, John 5, 40. Jesus says, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And there are some Christians who think that all are Christians, that all are saved, and they're what we call universalists. But Paul nor Jesus were universalists. They squared their shoulders with the fact that some do reject God because of their sin. And we know this from experience. We know that not all people are Christians. So sure, God loves the world. There is this inclusiveness about the gospel. But we know, even intuitively, that there's an exclusiveness to the gospel too. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, Paul says there's one God and there's one mediator. Now this is tough for us, isn't it? Those of us with modern ears we would like for there to be multiple gods or at least multiple ways to God that God can find a way to get all kinds of people from all different kinds of religion even those who don't subscribe to religion but friends that's not God he is one that rubs us the wrong way we want God to be like that because we want to be considered open-minded. We want to be considered inclusive and loving. That's what God is. And that's true. But I bet you might not be as open-minded as you think. When you think about all the ways there is to God, I bet you there's probably one that you do cross off. The one that you do cross off is that you can't get to God if you're going to be narrow-minded. If you're going to say there's only one way to God, then you're out. So you see that even those of us who are open-minded, we have some standards too, that we've got a definition of who's in and who is out. So there's tension here. You can overvalue the universal nature of God's love. God deserves, God desires all to be saved. That Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. You can overvalue that. And, and then you won't take seriously the reality that people really do reject God because of their sinful nature. And that leads to being, you tending towards being a universalist. But on the other side, if you overvalue the exclusive nature of the gospel, the fact that some people don't believe in Jesus, that they reject him, then you won't take seriously that God loves all people. And you certainly won't become a universalist, but you will, over time, unconsciously, become an elitist. Inevitably, you slowly and unconsciously begin to narrow the horizon of who can come to Jesus. You'll likely do so. You'll do it based on race, or class, politics, tribe. So you see, those who emphasize the universal nature of the gospel, they're heavy on love, light on truth. And on the other side, those who emphasize the exclusive nature of the gospel, they're heavy on truth, light on love. 
Now, I know this might just start spinning you into these theological and philosophical mind games. And you might just be sitting there wondering, gosh, Marsh, that's nice for smart people. Those of you are kind of idea-natured. But I'm a practical kind of person. What does this mean for my life? Whenever this reality comes up in the scripture, you see this tension behind God's love for all and the fact that some of us reject God ultimately. This tension is not put out there for us to have theological, philosophical arguments. It's put out there for our lived lives. There's always one of three lived life issues going on for the church when these two things are put side by side. The first of of them is humility. Because if you take your sinful nature seriously, if you take the exclusive nature of the gospel seriously, you're going to think there's no way I can get in. You know there's no reason other than God's grace that you're saved. You know it has nothing to do with how clever you were, nothing, nothing to do with your pedigree, has nothing to do with your superior moral fiber. In fact, the fact that you got in is in spite of your moral fiber. God graciously sent his beloved son to you as a mediator, the God-man mediator, because there was a chasm. A chasm that was created not because of God's anger, but because of our sin. And on one side of the chasm is God, and on the other side is man. And to, in order to stand in solidarity with them both, someone had to come who was both God and man. And that was Jesus, the mediator the one mediator who came as a ransom for all, and he put his hand squarely on both sides of the chasm and serves as a bridge. He died for sin and he rose again from the grave so that God and man might be united again because God desired all to be saved. And when that really sinks in, it does make you humble because you know that God doesn't need you. He wasn't impressed by you. You begin to see that you're the offended, that he was the offended party. And then he's done everything necessary to make things right with you. And you put these two things together and it makes you humble. The other thing it does is gives you reassurance. See, some of us, we, want to, we, we take this real seriously. There's no way we could get in. Can't believe that, anybody, that God would love any of us. <laughs> the first thing I just talked about slays your pride. This one slays your self-condemnation. You think, man, my shame, my guilt, my depression, that's what dominates my life. But what the gospel does is that it reframes those because it tells you that God loves you. See, see, usually, we're, I mean, we're used to thinking about relationships in, on a human level, that it takes two to tango. You've seen over and over again in your life and other people's lives that if one person's uncommitted to a relationship, it's not going to last very long. If one person kicks and screams against one party, the relationship's eventually going to be broken. If one party abandons the other party, no matter how hard the other person pursues, eventually they'll quit chasing the other party down. 
So you think the same thing's true with God. But when you put these two things in tension with one another, you see that God's love is so strong that you can't outrun him. You can fight all you want, but he's going to wait it out. He's going to be able to take the blows, and he's never going to tire out. And he eventually will subdue your fighting heart, your doubting heart, your fading heart, to give you reassurance. Because God loves you. So you can slay your pride, you can reassure your fading heart, and the last thing, as you see here, is that it stirs us to mission. And that's what our passage is about. So you see that it's urgent because there's only one God, and you know that not all know him. You know there's only one way to him, and the one way to God is so counterintuitive that no one's ever going to find it on their own. And so you know. You've got to follow in Paul's steps. You've got to get after verse 7, where Paul says that he's an apostle, he's a, he's a herald of this good news. And you know you've got to get out there with words and deeds and let those who don't know God, let them know that God loves them and desires to save them. That's true. Sharing the gospel in word and deeds, that's the business of our church. Just as much as that life-saving station, it was the mission of the life-saving station to save those who've been shipwrecked. And this whole idea of sharing the gospel, it's what Christians call evangelism. And as a preacher, I know there are a few things to make you feel worse about yourself than talking about evangelism. And it's because we're so ashamed of it. It just seems so impossible to turn the corner with our unchurched friends, with our unchurched family members to get to a gospel conversation. And so what we do is we fear rejection. And it also is hard because of their real resistance. So it just seems easier to give up. But friends, if we give up, this cautionary tale that I told you at the beginning of this sermon will become true of our church too. We will become a club. So we don't want to end up like a club. It'd be easy for me to say, verse 7, verse 7, verse 7. Herald, proclaim, share in word. But I want you to see, is that where Paul started in this text? Where did he start when he started talking about the world with evangelism? He didn't start in proclamation, he started with prayer. And I've got a list at home. This is my, my most war-torn three-by-five card I own. I mean, you wouldn't even be able to read it. Partly it's my handwriting, partly it's, it's worn out. And on that three-by-five card, I've got a few family members, I've got a few neighbors, I've got a few old friends who would all readily say, I'm not a Christian. And I don't pray for it every day, but I've had that card long enough that I've prayed for it some. And when I think about God saving any of those people, it really does seem impossible. I really don't, I mean, I can't even have, I don't even have a category of them coming to church, let alone them being baptized. I mean, I don't even have a category for them coming to winter song, whenever we can do that. So I understand if your reaction is, there's just no way. I get it. And I think that reaction is actually half biblical. 
See, if you're like me, you're becoming more convinced that our church, if it's going to grow with people who were formerly secular, those who were formerly unchurched, that were formerly de-churched, if that's who's going to start coming to our church, it's going to take a miracle. It's a lot easier for people to come from lots of other churches to our church. But you know how miracles happen? Prayer. If you think this whole business is hopeless, you're in a great spot. (laughs) It means that you've given up being the main actor in this whole life-saving drama. That's good. But we've got to take that next step in prayer. We've got to beg God to save our friends. And so may our church be a life-saving station all of our days because God desires to save all. And Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all, not just those who fit your imagination. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we we long for this to be the story of our church, not uh, so that we can be a big church and hit the news or be uh, famous in any way. We do it because we just love our friends. We love our family members and we love our neighbors and we love our coworkers. And we want you to see them know and love you. Oh Lord, so we beg and pray that all people, all kinds of people, will come to a saving knowledge of you. In Jesus' name, amen.